0: This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast, and I'm super excited today to be speaking once again with Brian Stafford of Diligent Corp, a board governance risk and compliance software as a service provider that recently acquired Acubio, an environmental social governance data aggregation reporting software company. So pretty exciting stuff. Uh, ESG is taking over so much of my reporting these days, and thanks, Brian, for taking the time.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me. Excited to be here and talk to your audience.
0: Okay, cool. So last time Brian was on the podcast, he talked about the trend of lead independent directors meeting up with shareholders and why it often takes a scandal to drive board shakeups. That was in 2018 and is still true today. But today we're gonna talk about the hot trend of environmental, social, governance, investing, and activism. And first, uh, Brian, maybe you can give us a little refresher on what Diligent does. And then I guess, and, and talk a little bit about why you decided to acquire Accubio.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ron. So Diligent is the largest cloud provider of governance, risk, and compliance software to companies around the world. We, have the, we are fortunate enough to work with about 25,000 leading organizations around the globe, including 80% of the Fortune 100, 70% of the FTSE 100, goes on from there. And we work with about 750,000 board members and C suite professionals who get to use our application to get access to board materials, content, everything governance related, including content, information, insights, et cetera. And we acquired a QVO, which is one of the leading data aggregators in ESG, specifically with depth and focus around climate, in part because the most frequently asked question we got from our 750,000 board members and C-suite users was, what should we be doing about ESG? And Mm -hmm. we have typically followed our clients' interest questions and insights into other opportunities. And ESG was a no-brainer given how frequent the conversations were. And what all of our clients were looking for was a tool to help them better collect data around ESG. Specifically, Acubio had a lot of depth in water, waste, transport, travel, commuting, supply chain, and 62,000-plus emission factors that help to populate people's reporting on ESG. But what companies also wanted was a little bit of help with how they should think through ESG strategy, reporting, target setting, because they're hearing about it not just from their employees, their consumers, but also, to your point, Ron, increasingly in a big way from investors.
0: Right. So I have to ask, sounds like a QVO has a lot of interesting data. From, from my perspective, whenever I talk to companies and activist investors, uh, ESG activists and things like that, there's always this perception that the companies are not doing enough on disclosing their carbon emissions and their contribution to climate change. So, I guess I just wanted to get a sense of this, uh, Cuvio, this data that they provide has a lot of uh, useful information on uh, like on a company by company basis on carbon emissions and things like that. Or can you maybe? Yeah, so it
1: it uh, helps you as a company collect and report on your own climate data. Ah, okay. And so, what typically all that data exists in a myriad of different systems because no one has ever been asked to or prior to kind of the ramp in ESG people haven't been asked to report on it. So it's actually... you know, Some of it comes from your commercial real estate vendor. Some of it comes from your travel and procurement systems. And so there's never been a system of record that makes it easy for you to pull this data because it exists in many different places. And that's what we've helped to put together in the most comprehensive ESG solution. And there are many different ways to disclose on it, as you and your listeners know. And our tool helps you use whatever standard you want to report on, whether it's a standard for The EU, whether it's TCFD, an increasing standard in the U.S., and allows you to report, take the same data and report on any of those standards. Because unfortunately for companies, there are different standards and reporting requirements by region.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. We uh, had a a webinar about the alphabet soup of disclosure. SASB is another one, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, and TCFD, of course, the task force on climate change. And and by the way, when you talk about wastewater, it's interesting because we are looking at potential targets for activist investors and a a number of the companies that operate in Canada's Oil sands, although environmentalists like to call them tar sands, so it's kind of a bit of a semantic battle there, have a lot of wastewater issues that uh, gives them very low ratings, like Sustainalytics, for example, gives them it's a very uh, high risk rating because of a variety of factors, carbon emissions, but also the wastewater. So anyway, that sounds really interesting. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about Diligence' overall ESG strategy and how, I guess, QBO fits into that.
1: Yeah, so our, our strategy has kind of evolved over the last few years. And like I said, largely triggered off of interest and questions from our clients. As a company itself, we pledged to achieve net zero by 2040. We launched an ESG center of excellence and committed to adopting and implementing the World Economic Forum's stakeholder capitalism metrics. But we're also not just living ESG, but also offering the tools, as we mentioned, available to our clients, including information, insights, research from the Diligent Institute, our nonprofit think tank, as well as content within our application for our users. So it's as much about practicing what we preach, but also making all potential resources available to our users, so they can get smarter and more nuanced on the topic. Because, you know, as we've all noted, you're hearing about it a ton from investors. But also, when people decide what companies they want to work for, and what companies they wanna buy products from. Increasingly, they care about how sustainable and how good, and I use that term in air quotes, the people they buy products from and the people they work for are.
0: Yeah, no, it's definitely very interesting. And I know that Diligent, you guys are, are experts on governance and boards and things like that. So I wanted to bring in this big raging debate going on about board of directors and ESG that's, I guess, emerging or escalating recently. And the Activists of Today podcast were kind of obsessed with this recent, very successful proxy fight where this upstart activist, Engine number 1, a fund that uh, just emerged out of nowhere, very small assets under management, launched this contest, kind of a David versus Goliath contest at ExxonMobil this year, and succeeded in getting three out of four of its distant director candidates elected, despite the fact that they brought in Jeff Ubin, the uh, ESG expert, uh, inclusive capital, the former Value Act co-founder. And uh, so anyways, this engine number one got three. There's this directors elected, including an experienced ex-oil and gas executive, two renewable resource experts. And one of the most incredible things of in the contest was that not only was Exxon not performing very well from a profitability point of view, but the board at the outset of the contest did not have anyone with prior oil and gas experience other than CEO Darren Woods. Let me just repeat that again. They didn't have anybody with oil and gas kind of experience, a lot of S&P 500, ex-CEO, current CEO, directors, very prestigious, established people with not a lot of oil and gas experience. So, Brian, from your diligent experience, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you thought about the contest and what do you think the results tell us about the future of activist investors and maybe how boards should be made up, what it tells us about corporate board makeup.
1: Yeah. I mean, it it was obviously very interesting to watch engine number one and the proxy case that they waged. I mean, as we all know, if companies who underperform general will be targeted by activists. And I think increasingly there is, for many companies in industries like energy or other spaces, there's increasingly need among investors to focus on the long-term. And the long-term implies How sustainable are your products going to be? How do your mix of solutions, how does that evolve over time and meet the ever-changing needs of the market? And I think those issues are heightened in industries like energy. So it's not surprising that combination, along with the fact that companies are, are being pushed to have a more diverse board of directors, as you noted, and Diverse, not just on a racial diversity perspective, but a diversity of, of opinions and backgrounds, I think uh, made this proxy fight, and I think you'll see others like it, just more poignant. It was um, in terms of the the sharpness of the argument, the three out of the four dissonant directors, and I think it's something that you know many boards are obviously paying close attention to.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting. So one of the, uh, engine number one directors that won election, Kaisa Hytelta, uh, previously served as president of renewable products and members of the executive committee at Nesti, which is a Finnish oil ref- refinery company. And so anyways, I'm just kind of curious, you do you think, uh, you know, it's in the, the one thing in, in Exxon's defense, you know, they had a very diverse board in terms of gender, demographic diversity, things like that. But, uh, not a lot of oil and gas expelled, <laughs> no oil and gas experience except for the CEO prior to the contest. And they didn't have a, a, a much in the way of uh, people that are kind of experts in this transition, this environmental renewable transition. So I guess, do you think that that's something, you know, we'll see, we'll, there'll be a big more push to get people like this Kaiser Hightelta on boards? particular to energy companies, uh, as you know, at, maybe if you want to kind of bring in, what, you know, what do what, what you think about institutional investors? They seem to be really pushing for, at least in some cases, for kind of energy transition people on corporate boards.
1: Yeah, I, I would actually argue that a lot of the ESG movement that we're seeing come from ESG activists. I would argue has actually started from the Black Rocks, Vanguards, and the State Streets of the world. Right. And now you see activist investors piling on. And so by that, I mean for context, given the passive investors, the Black Rocks and the State Streets are forced to, they can only hold the stocks that exist within indexes. They're particularly focused on making sure that those stocks persist. And if a stock drops out of the index, it means it is lost in value and underperformed. And so if you're one of the passive investors, you're pushing to make sure that the stocks in the index persist and sustain over a long period of time. You can't sell them. And so the way that you make sure that a company persists for 10 to 20 years is you make sure that it stays on top of all of the relevant industry trends, focus areas, et cetera, that will help to sustain the company over the course of long-term. And that are areas that squarely fall into ESG. Mm -hmm. And so um, BlackRock, State Street saying, hey, the way that an energy company will um, persist, and thus the people who invested in our passive fund will continue to make money is... A focus on the future of energy, <laughs> a mm-hmm. future and focus on the future of sustainability. So mm-hmm. I think you actually saw the passive investors making really interesting arguments to start with that then has been built on by a lot of the ESG activists. So I think that's a huge area of that you'll see additional growth. But I do think that it is the activists following the passives, which is a little bit the non traditional take from activists, but it has proven to be successful. And I think the focus will end up being then, what are the skills that did not exist on the board? <laughs> and right. get back to your question and say, if, you, if you're if you going to be a leader in energy transition, do you actually have the skills on your board to help you do that transition? And, you know, in cases we're finding out that's not, that doesn't exist, and hence it, it exposes to activists.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I t- the uh, one thing I would note is that the engine number one, the activist investor owns 0.02% of Sun yep. stock and clearly they would not have gone into this contest if they didn't know that some of the big index funds, particularly BlackRock comes to mind, were, were upset about not only Exxon's performance and from a share price and profitability point of view, but also concerns about its ability to. Deal with some of these sustainability issues and climate change and things like that and be sustainable for many years. So yeah, if, if it wasn't, and obviously they would not have succeeded in getting their three distant directors, three out of four distant directors elected on the board without the backing, you know, full or partial backing from some of these huge index funds that owned, I think, 18% of, of Exxon. So they compared to the 0.02, but it's interesting that these hedge funds can be kind of a catalyst to push these index funds into. You know, the BlackRock, uh, is, as far as I could tell, you know, has no plans to launch its own director fights at companies, though they will vote against directors in uncontested elections. So, yeah, I agree that I think we'll see more of these, you know, the, the, the hedge fund maybe kind of being the catalyst to drive these big index funds into action. Yeah, yeah
1: or, or, or your point, uh, an activist who actually had a sense for the way some of the passive funds wanted to vote and pushed on or wrote
0: on that agenda. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I totally agree. I feel, you know, part of me, the cynical part of me wonders, you know, there's, is that would you? Know, would they, uh they might, the hedge activists would have continued with their traditional strategies had it not been the index funds you know, not interested in those, you know, m type things and more. Yeah, I
1: mean, look, look it, it, all, it all starts with, you know, activists will target companies that are underperforming either in absolute right. terms or underperforming their peers. And so that does happen. I think, as we've seen many cases, activists will be opportunistic and will push on change in general to help to shake up someone who may be performing in the bottom two quartiles. And so um, whatever the right avenue for that change is, they will push on it. And in this Case like I said, and I think there will be others where ESG ends up being that angle.
0: Okay, so we don't have a lot of time left, but I wanted to just—we spent a lot of time talking about the E of ESG and the and the G also, but I wanted to just touch on kind of the S a little bit. And uh, we've been writing here at the deal a lot about these, you know, in California recently approved the rule, approved the requirement for California based companies to have more uh, gender and demographic diversity. The, the securities exchange commission just approved a NASDAQ proposal requiring NASDAQ boards to have uh, a woman director and a demographically diverse director or, you know, within a certain period of time, I think two to five years, depending on the size of the, the company. You should have a woman director and a demographically diverse director or explain why you do not have those two categories on your board. And then we did a uh, study and we found that there's a large amount, I want to say over 120 NASDAQ listed companies with no women on their board. So anyways, that's a long way of just asking, Brian, do you think, you know, we've seen this kind of the, I feel like this is something that the index funds also care a lot about. And so I'm wondering if you think an activist could target a company to drive more board diversity, more gender and demographic diversity. Maybe that's not their primary objective, but that, uh, you know, that could be an ESG style campaign in the future. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah. Look, it builds on the same point that we just discussed. If a company is underperforming, then I assume an activist will look for areas to, Drive change and and create an opportunity to put a different slate of directors on. <laughs> and so, if you're a company, you need to be focused on the areas by which a focused on absolute performance, <laughs> but b focused on the angles by which someone might approach you. And you know, I think we talked about ESG. We talked about or the E and ESG. now talking about the S, I think that's definitely an angle. I think the interesting thing will be with the Nasdaq proposal in terms of having two categories of diversity, but also companies explaining why. And I think you'll find some activists queuing on the reasons why people said that they couldn't find diversity. And those are the comments that I think you'll say, if I could predict what would happen two years into the future, you'll see activists saying, well, the reason why someone said they couldn't do this was fascinating. And I'm using that as a euphemism. <laughs> uh, and they'll, they'll call out those specific reasons and say, well a well-performing organization would be able to address that and you know wouldn't come up with these reasons. So I think additional disclosures create opportunity, obviously, for a company to educate its investor community, but also on the flip side, creates opportunities for activists to find additional information to key off
0: of, to ultimately look to drive change that could improve performance. Yeah, no, I, I agree also. I think a company that will have to explain why they couldn't put a woman on their board and a demographically diverse person on the board you know, whatever that explanation is, I could totally see an activist taking advantage of it and you're using that as part of their campaign if the company isn't performing well, which would be the primary driver. So anyways, uh, thanks. So I, we're out of time. Thanks, Brian, for speaking to the Activist Investment Today podcast. I'm your host, once again, Ron Oral, and we've been talking to Brian Stafford of Diligent Corp, a board governance, risk and compliance software as a service provider. Thanks, Brian, for taking the time.
1: Thanks, Ron. Enjoyed the conversation
0: again.